What makes a great solar business? How can you learn from the past and prepare for the future so your solar business thrives? We set out to answer these questions and more. My name is Nigel Morris and I'm the Head of Business Development at Solar Analytics. Welcome to Great Solar Business, proudly brought to you by Solar Juice. Well, hello, solar friends, and welcome back to another episode of Great Solar Business. This week, we explore yet more secrets of Great Solar Business and discuss the topic, USA Perspective on Australian Solar. As an avid podcast listener, I regularly tune in to hear other people's perspectives on solar. There's always something you can learn. I recently stumbled across a great podcast out of the US called Solar Mavericks. And what really struck me was the differences between the US market and the Australian market. There are many similarities, but also some stark differences between how our two countries are adopting solar and undoubtedly some lessons for all of us to learn. Never one to let an opportunity go by. I reached out to Benoit Thanjan, who hosts the show in between being the CEO and founder of Renew Energy. Benoit, welcome to Great Solar Business. Thank you, Nigel, for having me. I'm excited to be here and uh, look forward to the conversation. And I appreciate all your thought leadership and your 30 years in the solar industry. And I enjoy your podcast as well. And I'm excited you reached out to me. Oh, well, we're starting off on a great foot there, yeah. Benoit. That's stroke the, stroke the host's ego. You know how to do this. Well done. Well done. Thank you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, look, let's give our listeners, uh, let's give our listeners uh, um, an insight into who you are and 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 what you do and who Renew Energy is. Give us uh, give us a brief history. Tell us who you are and, and um, what you do. Definitely. So Renew Energy is a company that I founded in 2012. We actually just celebrated our nine-year anniversary, which is amazing. And if you look at solar as dog years, like nine years is a very, very long time. Yes, Um, it is. (laughs) And you probably know better than most people about it. So uh, being 30 years in the industry, and it's just just amazing as a business, like how much we have had to adapt uh, because, you know, solar keeps changing. We're really trying to add value to our clients and we're a solar developer and consulting firm. We develop commercial, industrial and utility scale projects in the Northeast Mid-Atlantic of the U.S. We also help other developers with development as well with originating land opportunities, uh, understanding incentives, helping with interconnection and financial modeling. We also partner with developers on uh, sourcing, financing, and consulting them with that. And then how we first started the business was we uh, got involved in renewable energy credits. And I don't know how familiar um, people in Australia are with that. That's an incentive created by the state to incentivize the development of solar. It's very popular in the Northeast of the U.S. And they have a separate carve out for solar renewable energy credits. And just to give you an idea, like the price range for these credits could be between uh, 30 U.S. dollars to 230 uh, U.S. dollars, and obviously per wow. megawatt an hour. So, yeah, we, we have similar schemes down here, but not at 230 bucks. So that's uh, <laughs> that's good. Yeah, definitely. Um, obviously, you know, the higher the incentive, the more uh, activity that 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 creates. And we you have brokered about like $30 million in 
these uh, renewable energy credit transactions. We help uh, asset owners basically mint production into RECs and then sell it. And we do pricing and research for it. And then, as you mentioned, uh, Nigel, I also have the, the Solar Maverick podcast, which we have done now 106 episodes. It's a biweekly podcast about solar and entrepreneurship where you know I inter- interview different people in the industry and then also talk about different topics. And then just briefly before I started uh, Renew Energy, I was at uh, Tesla Solar City and their project finance group, a solar EPC called Vanguard Energy Pro- Partners doing finance and then a private equity fund called Ridgewood Renewable Power where we invested in solar, uh, not solar projects and renewable energy projects. And uh, before that, I was at Deloitte and their energy group. So I have about like 12 to 14 years of experience in renewable energy. Right on. That, well, what a great and fascinating uh, sort of um, little history you've got there uh, bouncing across various parts of the of, of the industry. And I, I know the, the little that I know about US is so much of it's been about um, large scale and, um, you know, to... Um, uh, I, I, I'm going to have to bail you up and talk to you about large scale on a completely different uh, topic sometime to to hear some more about what you've learnt there. <laughs> Great to have you on the show. Let, let's dive in for a sec because um, you know, we, and I'm going to focus mostly on the differences between Australia and the US to try and see where there are similarities and where there are really um, big differences so that we can try and learn some lessons from each other here. But, you know, the Australian solar market's dominated by low-priced residential and commercial sales. We have about 300000 a year, and we've had some large-scale. In fact, it's it's really taken off over the last sort of four or five years particularly. Tell me, how does this compare to the US? You know, are you dominated by large-scale still? What's happening in residential? Give us the landscape. Yeah, so it's interesting because I think the landscape uh, is so the U.S. is such a big country with 50 different states. And I think all types of, uh, you know, uh, solar is popular, like residential. But obviously, the large majority of the megawatts that are coming online is utility scale. Um, I think there's about two, two million installations per year when you talk about residential, commercial, industrial and utility scale projects. We're seeing like in certain parts of the country, uh, more popularity towards uh, residential solar. Uh, when you talk about like the West Coast, uh, the Northeast and like Hawaii. And that's mainly because uh, these states have like high electricity costs, uh, specifically like the West of the U.S. and Hawaii have also a uh, high solar irradiance. So it makes, you know, a good market for for residential solar and also depends on like state level incentives. So you'll see um, a lot in the Northeast, people are surprised. It doesn't have as high a solar irradiance, but they have high electricity costs and high state level incentives. You'll see more of the utility scale development in hotter parts of the country where land is cheaper. And uh, that's like in Texas or uh, Nevada, uh, you know, there's a lot of development in the South that's happening more and more. Usually like the state level incentives are lower, but it still makes, you know, economic sense. So yeah, it, it kind of varies. It's hard to say because different parts of the country uh, have different schemes to promote it. And um, there's also something called community solar, which is extremely popular 
in the U.S. and getting more and more popular as time goes on. Interesting, interesting, and and um, you, you raise a couple of really interesting points there. So that I wanted to just dive into for a sec. So yeah. you know, we we um, I see comments from um, U.S. solar installers on some of the um, some of the groups and pages that I follow, and uh, you know. Uh, Australia has relatively expensive energy prices. Um, you know, probably on average, most people pay close to 30 cents Australian uh, per kilowatt hour now. How does that compare to the US? Yeah, so uh, that's a great point. So, like in the US, it's definitely a lot cheaper uh, for a residential customer uh, for their electricity. I would say the ranges that I've seen, like in the Northeast and Mid Atlantic, is like between uh, 14 to 23 cents uh, mm-hmm. per kilowatt hour. But I could tell you like California is more expensive than that. And then Hawaii as well, obviously like, you know, being an island, which is similar to Australia, like they have like high, higher electricity costs and not as much, um, you know, centralized power. So, you know, a lot of things get imported into the, into the island. And that's why like solar has, you know, proliferated, you know, very big in Hawaii compared to other states. So. I've, I've seen that actually. And I, what some of the great technical, some of the technical technological challenges Hawaii has are very similar to the ones that we have here in Australia due to our, um, you know, high rates of energy uh, prices, uh, which, you know, creates a virtuous, a, a virtuous loop of people going, well, electricity is expensive. I'll buy solar. Uh, that changes the, the network behavior. Uh, less people buy energy. So the price goes up more. So more people buy solar and we get end up in a virtuous loop of goodness and solar. So, uh, yeah, that's interesting. So there's a big, big, fairly substantial gap in the energy pricing, which is kind of what I sensed. Um, and, and it's interesting to, um, uh, to think what might happen as those rates inevitably change over time. If they do in the US, you'll um, potentially see things shifting the way they do in Australia. The, the other one I wanted to ask about, you mentioned this, you know, a couple of million uh, solar systems installed each year in the US. Um, how, how's it going with batteries? Uh, you know, uh, 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 what's the attachment, the typical attachment rate of batteries? So right now I would say the attachment uh, for batteries are relatively low when it comes to residential uh, systems. You're seeing a lot of it, though, in California and in Hawaii. California actually has a great state-level incentive for batteries, um, and customers are willing to pay more for, like, if they just purely want it for backup power. And, I like, for example, with, with Tesla, I know, like, some people will buy multiple you know, power walls just to have like that battery backup just in case due to an outage, even though it's probably be a lot cheaper to get a generator. But most of the U.S. doesn't really make economic sense. And then there hasn't been any real like state level incentive uh, to get storage. But I think that's all going to change as time goes on. You know, I think a lot of states are starting to think about, um, you know, coupling solar plus storage and then also what that incentive should be and then also how that creates like reliability to the grid you know going forward by having that customer having that in the future so i think it's still very early in the process but i think what we're seeing is that the price of batteries are going down substantially specifically lithium ion uh, technology and i think within two or three years you're going to see 
you know, pretty much every residential customer getting, you know, some sort of storage with it. Yeah, right. And and tell me, uh, how how does, um, and I know one of the things I have learned about the US over the years um, is that one of the big challenges is you've got, you know, very uh, disparate and variable uh, regulations and rules and, and, and um, you know, big rebates in some areas, disincentives and other sorts. I know there's a lot of variation in the market, but... Generally speaking, uh, you know, in Australia, uh, for, for history, we um, uh, there was no feed-in tariffs originally, of course. Then we moved to um, gross feed-in tariffs in, in a number of areas uh, where you got paid for everything that you produced and, and just simply charged an, in, uh, an incentivised uh, or you benefited from an incentivised feed-in tariff for, for just generation. But uh, nationally now, I think uh, without exception, um, we are on all uh, on net feed-in tariffs where you basically can offset the um, uh, the energy that you would normally buy, so you're offsetting at 30 cents a kilowatt hour if you're self-consuming, and then the export rates are netted off at a quite a low rate. Typically, you're getting five or six or eight cents for the energy that you're exporting. What happens in the US around metering and um, you know the export of solar energy? Yes, yeah, so that's a, a great question, and you're right. Like every state is different. Um, I think what's happening when you're exporting the energy back to the grid um you know you're usually getting some sort of like wholesale sort of credit to the electricity rate so let's like give an example like in the state of new jersey i think like the whole that's where we're based actually it's like a three and a half cent credit that you get mind you you're paying like 12 to 14 cents you know for your electricity uh, as a residential customer, or even yep. higher than that, fifteen cents. Yep. So you know what what solar companies have been doing is like sizing either the residential or commercial industrial system, where you know you potentially would only produce enough where it it wouldn't be actually exported to the grid, right. so that you wouldn't right. get that. It just doesn't make sense to invest that much to maximize the solar output when you're not getting paid. Um, you know, commensurate rate for that. But I think over the over time, you know, that's going to change. Um, you know, California has like time of use rates, which when you sell it back to the grid, you at a certain time, you get a higher rate, which I'm not that right. sure of because we don't do a lot in California, but I've heard about that. But yep. correct me, obviously, if I'm wrong on that. Um, you know, obviously, certain... Um, certain uh utilities in certain states have put some sort of extra charge if you export back into the grid which was you know sort of a big issue uh and a lot of so it's interesting because it really depends on you know the utility in each jurisdiction in mm. each state and there are multiple utilities or energy companies that are in that sort of service area that control uh the transmission and distribution but primarily like you get basically a, a wholesale rate for your export got it which at this point doesn't make any sense yeah got it it's uh it raises a bunch of interesting questions for me because um has has that has that um yeah so to get an economic to get the most out of your um solar from an economic perspective if you're let's and let's focus on residential for the moment but to get the most out of your solar system economically, that would mean that you therefore need to be focused very hard on self-consumption. That 
has given rise to a dramatic increase in the use of, you know, really high quality monitoring solutions. Are you seeing consumers embracing monitoring solutions to help optimize their economics uh, like like we have uh, in those applications? Yeah, definitely. Monitoring is huge to be able to monetize and to understand like the electricity usage and consumption, because that's an important piece to it. And obviously the design of the system and the type of panels that you're using to make sure, um, you know, before you get the solar system that, um, you know, you would have large exports into the grid. So definitely like the monitoring, you know, software plays a huge key to it. And I think in the future, when um, consumers are able to build like more of a cash flow stream that's more commensurate for, you know, providing reliability to the grid. I think yeah. the yeah, modern yeah, yeah. will be even more important and be more robust for the consumer than, you know, it would be if it's just self-consumption. Yeah. 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 We, we're, we're seeing this demand uh, grow over time. It, it also, um, it also begs the question to me if I, or, or I want to just be clear on some of these differences so again, so the focus on learning from each other. But um, am, am I right that that like Australia, we have um, you know, a very competitive solar industry. We have lots and lots of players um, and um, uh, we also have a very, very competitive and rapidly changing utility network space, particularly the retail space. You know, they're seeing profits being eroded uh, because they're not selling as much energy because of the proliferation of solar. We're seeing wholesale prices being changed dramatically because of renewables. Um, And so, you know, that causes confusion for customers because there's, you know, so many rules and regulations for installers to abide by depending on where they're installing. And and for consumers, choosing the right energy plan is also a real challenge because, like you were describing, there are lots of retail options. Tell me, is is, is the competitive landscape in the US similar to us in that sense? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's so much disruption that's happening in the industry. So you, you're right, like um, energy companies or utilities specifically, you know, are losing, you know, revenue because of renewables like solar that they would have had before. Um, so they're adjusting to a new sort of business model. The solar industry, um, as Nigel likes to say, there's a lot of cowboys, but here cow, it's like kind of <laughs> in the same way, you know, uh, a lot of people, you know, trying to, to get in the solar industry, there's a lot of competition. Uh, so it's how you differentiate yourself. There's a lot of people as well who don't have that much experience, but there's really like no barriers of entry for people to get in. So, you know, there are other ways that you have to differentiate yourself to be able to to be competitive and, and everything is just changing rapidly. So everyone's just adjusting. Constant uh, change. To- it's never boring. It's never ever boring. There's always <laughs> always some challenge to deal with in this industry, and uh, I'm glad uh, I'm glad we're not alone there. That's and and talking about the competition, and and I've watched this over the years, and and you know it is so challenging with all this constant change and constantly having to adapt, and you know rules changing, retail deals changing, your economics changing. In some places, you're encouraged to put solar in in others you know there's there's rules that effectively block you from the market but one of the things that we've managed to do um perhaps 
perhaps uh, to our detriment, uh, but certainly to the benefit of consumers is drive the price of solar down. Um, you know, in Australia, we can, um, you can, you can jump online and find a whole bunch of ads for solar, you know, 30, 40 cents a watt installed uh, in US dollars, which, which is just incredible. And I've been involved in a couple of studies over the years, looking at the differences in solar installed prices around the world to try and un- unpick them and, and understand, you know, why, why are the costs different here to there and, and what can we learn from each other? Tell me where's pricing. Uh, and again, I know there is huge variation, but you know, typically what I hear is that the solar prices in the U S are still much higher than 30 or 40 cents U S after rebates uh, in Australia, where are prices sitting at the moment and, and in the U S and assuming that I'm correct, that they're still higher. Why are they higher? Yeah, definitely. That's a great question. And it's it's definitely a lot higher. Um, I would say like for like the average system size, residential is like five kilowatts. Um, that probably costs between, you know, three and five dollars per watt uh, US dollar, which results into like 15,000 to 25,000 dollar range. And that's like the cost before, you know, tax credits and incentives. So I don't know how familiar, but we the big incentive that's actually driven the growth of solar in the U.S. is a federal incentive called the Investment Tax Credit. Yes, yes. So it was like basically a thirty percent grant on the cost of the system would be you know cash to uh, the person installing it. Now it's a tax credit. It's actually twenty six percent this year. And the new administration or the Biden administration is talking about actually extending that you know for a longer period of time than than just the next few years potentially, like for another ten years. Um, it's interesting because when I hear the prices in Australia and other, other countries, it's just amazing to me, like how it's that cheap. But I think one of the things, <laughs> don't worry, it's, it's amazing to us as well. Don't worry. <laughs> For sure. But I think the big thing is, is really like the soft costs, the balance and system cost, which is probably, you know, could add almost like a dollar per watt to, to any, installation or six thousand dollars that's related to like you know getting through like permitting and the inspection process so the you know that requires solar installation time and money and there's no real like sort of centralized you know permitting code for for installation so each like state or county or municipality has like their own rules and then as well like the inspection process depends on the utility usually like the utility or energy company has to have someone like specific from the utility company come out to inspect the project sometimes there are delays in even getting that person to come out and then you can't even turn on the system you know i've seen uh delays of four two months three months to just get some you know someone from the utility to basically you know start up the system and it, it passing the inspection process, which it sounds like in uh, in Australia, it's not like that. And then also, um, you know, the cost for solar panels and the equipment, uh, specifically panels, like there are tariffs on most solar panels coming from outside of the U.S. You know, there's also uh, tariffs on steel as well coming from China. So I think like these are some of the reasons why. I also think too. Um, as you build more and more solar, um, installers become more efficient and are able to install 
quicker. And maybe that's another reason too, but I'm not sure, you know, um, because so much solar has been put in Australia that maybe that's one of the reasons as well. But I don't know if that's as good of a reason because the same thing's happening in the U.S. A lot of local installers tend to dominate the market instead of big national players. Yeah. 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 There's some, uh, there, there's a lot of similarities there. I mean, certainly we do have challenges getting connections to the grid from time to time here and do have delays. If it's managed well, it can usually, uh, usually be done. But I think uh, a common theme that I've heard for, for years and years and years is this complexity of permitting and, and connection in the U S is, is a big challenger. Um, and I think the other one that I've seen in some of the previous studies that I've looked at was that, you know, US installers, um, as I don't know, it's hard to generalize, but, uh, but, uh, but one finding that I really saw was that US installers were really focused on the cost of acquisition and they really understood how much it was going to cost to acquire a customer. And, um, they adjusted their, their revenue and margin expectations to really make sure that they were covering that. Whereas here in Australia, we maybe are a little less focused on that. And, you know, um, um, it's kind of, um, a, a simpler business model, I think. And that means that, you know, margins are, uh, very, very slim here. And, um, and of course, having, you know, fairly generous rebates and, and a very attractive proposition for end customers means people just rush at it, um, and and it's it has a little bit of a little bit of a gold rush flavour to it from time to time. I have to say, Benoit. But listen, we um, there's so much more to talk about. Um, but let's take a breather and hear a message from our sponsors. Solar Juice is Australia's leading solar distributor, providing complete residential and commercial rooftop solar component solutions. SolarJuice aligns themselves with brands that share their values of service, support, quality and value for money. Like their panel brands, REC, Hyundai, Trina and Longy, their inverters, SMA, Fronius and SunGrow, along with the Tesla Powerwall battery. Check out solarjuice.com.au and let SolarJuice help you become a great solar business. Great Solar Business is also brought to you by Solar Analytics. Get more from your solar, more confidence, more savings and more insights with solaranalytics.com.au. Thank you so much to our really valuable uh, sponsors in Solar Juice who are out there backing us all the way. Thanks for the for the, the support of the team there. Benoit, um, so many things that we can keep talking about, but we're going to have to watch the time. So I'm going to jump now to the sort of wind up uh, and the three questions where I'm really trying to um, find out the, the key big lessons that we can learn. So let's shift gears to thinking about um, about the future now and, and what's coming overall when you look at the u.s market and we've talked on touched on disruption we've talked on the changing wholesale prices we've touched on competition and and you know the changing economics and everything else but overall what do you think is the is the major market change that that you see coming over the next year or two um that the u.s market's going to have to adapt to because i'm looking for what we can learn from that from that change that's coming yeah, definitely. This is something, um, you know, the U.S. market, like obviously financing of projects are a big part of any sort of project. Uh, so power purchase agreements have been very important. What we're seeing is like over what's happening really quickly is that the term of the agreements are getting less and less. For example, it used to be like 
20 years with one off taker. Now we're seeing, you know, companies comfortable with 10 years uh, contracts. And as time goes on, I'm seeing where companies are, are owners of solar projects of community solar and utility scale are fine with uh, shorter and shorter contracts with uh, one or multiple parties being, you know, companies or residential off takers. And they're getting more comfortable with taking merchant risk. And wow. I think that will allow for like more uh, financing of solar projects going forward, going forward as, you know, more and more uh, solar asset owners become comfortable with solar as an asset, which they have. And now like less and less restrictions are there when it comes to financing. So I think In, that will- Interesting, shorter, shorter terms. That's been something we've watched over the years as well. And that's always been a barrier, right? So if you can get that down to 10 years or- or less and de-risk it, then, you know, more money comes in, the money gets cheaper, people will sign things quicker, right? So that's, um, yeah, that's that's an interesting one to watch here. And I think we've started to see that. We certainly don't have the experience that you guys do in the large-scale space, um, although we're, we're chasing, chasing quickly there. Um, so that's a cool one. What about at the residential level? Um, what are the, what are the lessons you think we could learn apart from perhaps how to make profit? Uh, I know, I know traditionally that's been something I've admired the US inst- installation industry, uh, for. Um, but, but, you know, what are the, what are the trends that you're starting to see? Um, uh, you know, is EV uptake, uh, uh, an intrinsic part of the solar industry now? We've t- touched on batteries, heat control. What what are consumers looking for? Yeah, so I think electric cars is one of the big things that uh, everyone's really talking about in the U.S. and everyone's excited in the residential market because a lot of um, Americans want electric cars and we're seeing a huge increase in the amount of cars, electric cars that are being bought, that are being manufactured. The Biden administration has a goal of 50% electric cars by 2030, which is extremely aggressive if you think about it. Wow. Yeah, that's a game changer, right? Oh, that's a game changer. And then, you know, like what's normal if someone has an electric car and they have a charging, uh, you know, they charge at their home, they're going to want solar. That's just the natural sort of equation. So we believe that it's going to uh, lead to a lot more proliferation of solar. The other thing too, um, like the new Ford F-150, you know, you basically can use it to charge your home. Uh, so people are really excited about that because you have a, you know, it just creates another sort of op- opportunity and option. So, and, and we think like electricity generation is just going to obviously uh, increase dramatically with all these electricity needs happening going forward. But we think that EVs are going to lead to a huge amount of solar on residential homes as well. So it's kind of like a combined package. Interesting. Yeah, they they certainly they certainly seem to go hand in hand, don't they? Because if you want that low cost energy, uh, and particularly in Australia, if you want the cheapest energy to top up your EV with, then you do that from a home solar system. You don't do it from grid power. You you absolutely need solar. So. That will be really interesting because this the integration and smart control of EV charging from solar uh, is something that um, you know everyone's watching with great interest and some great early stuff going on here in Australia and other parts of the world 
around that intelligent behavior. So, you know, if, uh, if EVs, it's ironic that it's EVs that are going to drive solar where it's solar that's driving EVs here. Uh, um, but, uh, you know, the, we'll have that crossover point too. All right. We're running out of time, sadly, Benoit, but one last question to wrap it all up. Um, you can be as controversial as you like now. You can say anything you like. Hardly anyone listens. No one's probably listening right now. So, you know, no one's listening. What's your crystal ball telling you? You're sitting there. You're a business owner. You're doing consulting. You're in projects. You're watching the market. You're excited about solar. You're talking to lots of people in the industry. You know, um, if you were sitting back with uh, with a couple of cold beers under your belt thinking, I reckon I know the next big thing that's coming. And if I can be completely controversial, this is what I reckon is, is going to happen next year that probably no one else would believe me if I said it. What What is that prediction, Benoit? What's the secret? That is a, a really hard question. <laughs> um, I think, I know this sounds boring though, but one of the challenges that we have like in the US for utility scale projects, if the hosting capacity is not can't handle the prod utility scale project, that um usually the solar project has to pay for that upgrade. Yep. For the which I don't actually think is fair because um, you know, like there's a benefit to having these distributed resources on the network and it's not just purely for the solar company. So uh, part of, uh, you know, uh, President Biden's infrastructure plan is to increase, to upgrade the infrastructure of the U.S. And that is as well electricity infrastructure. And I feel like they are, and I think they potentially might find a way of, of helping um, subsidize like distributed energy systems going on in, onto the network. And so that's not cost prohibitive if there's benefits to um, the total population or, or the people in that utility service area. So right I don't on. know if it's really that con- controversial though. <laughs> I would say a lot of people, a lot of people in certain part, you know, like wouldn't agree with doing that specifically the utility or people who. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, they, I mean, it, it is, I mean, it's that, that, that really interesting balance between, you know, um, is is it the network's job to build a, 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 an elect, a grid infrastructure that can handle two-way energy flows at the discretion of people who want to build generators? It's it's a really interesting question, and um, I think there's a there's a place for a good debate about um, you know how we share that, especially when you consider the shared benefits, as you as you say, that the community gets. And we've seen that in spades. Wholesale energy prices have dropped dramatically in Australia purely because of the benefits of renewables, um, despite what our um what some of our um thick-headed politicians might might have told you over the years and have warned how we're going to drive the price up. Well, guess what? We're actually reducing the price. So there's a benefit for everyone. Benoit, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show, but sadly we're out of time. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Anytime. Thank you for having me. It was great to be on your show. Thanks, Benoit. And friends, that's a wrap for another episode. My name is Nigel Morris. I'm Head of Business Development at Solar Analytics. I hope you picked up some tips on how to build a great solar business and look forward to speaking to you again soon. Great Solar Business was brought to you by Solar Juice, Australia's leading solar distributor. 
Sologuice aligns themselves with brands that share their values of service, support, quality and value for money. Check out solarjuice.com.au and let Solarjuice help you become a great solar business. Great Solar Business was also brought to you by Solar Analytics. Get more from your solar, more confidence, more savings and more insights with Solar Analytics. 